You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I am Nathan Gilmore, uh, one of the long-running hosts of the show. Joining me uh, this evening, as we record, uh, are not the normal hosts that you might expect, but it should be exciting times precisely because they're not who you expect. And one of those unexpected guests is Dr. Dan Dawson. He's a meteorology professor at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. Dan, how are things? Things are pretty good. Just started up the semester here in, in my second week and, uh, you know, just usual kind of like rush to get things set up in class. But um, watching pressure waves from an, a volcanic eruption past my weather station a few times, that's been fun. Um, and uh, yeah, doing okay. <laughs> And as usual, Dan's 30 seconds in and he's already lost me. But (laughs) also joining us, someone that uh, before we started recording, I discovered I hadn't recorded with, uh, but it feels like I have because I've listened to him so often on the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, Someone I think of as the right reverend, Blake Miller. Uh, Blake, how are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. Uh, we got that snow that blew in from Atlanta uh, up here in South Carolina now. So uh, Martin Luther King, you know, it was, it was a kind of a forced rest instead of an elective rest from work and got to a late start this morning at work. But other than that, I think everybody uh, managed to get from one end of the snow to the other. All right today. Sounds like a winner. Sounds How much like a did winner. you get there? Just curious. It was a good five inches at the height uh, of it, I would say. I, I dislike you very much right now, and I don't even know you. <laughs> no, you can we, come I, and take it if you want. because I, yeah. I really like snow, and we've barely got, I think, a total of an inch here this whole, the whole winter so far. Wow, it's been yeah. horrible up here in Indiana. Now, guys, what you might not know about the history of our podcast is we've gotten more than one email complaining that we talk about the weather too much at the beginning. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to bring this to a halt and tell our listeners, remind our listeners, perhaps, that this episode is part of a network wide crossover uh, organized by the brilliant Alexis Neal. Uh, the first episode, which I actually had a chance to listen to, uh, is City of Man talking about church polity. Uh, City of Man, of course, is our faith and politics uh, podcast anchored by Coyle Neal. Uh, after that, you're going to be able to hear an episode of Complementarianish, uh, which is a sort of a side project of the Christian Feminist Podcast put together by the Complementarians of the Christian Feminist Podcast. After that, uh, Danny Anderson and the uh, Sectarian Review Podcast, although I wrote that wrong in my notes. We'll be talking about the phenomenon of celebrity pastors and then the Christian Feminist Podcast uh, with a cast that I do not know and on a subject matter that I do not know. We'll have an episode 
uh, because they are being, uh, you know, well, they're not being anything. They just didn't tell me what their episode was about. So I'll be listening for that as eagerly as you are, listeners. Uh, here on the Christian Feminist, no, the Christian Humanist podcast, we're pretty much derivative of them at this point. Um, we would definitely like for all of our listeners to check out our counterparts at those other shows. But for those of us who are, but for those listeners who are listening to us first, um, Dan, we're talking about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Which Mars Hill are we talking about? And why does the podcast sound like a book on the, the Roman Empire? And why are we having a podcast that talks about another podcast that talks about a church that had podcasts in the first place? Yeah, so yeah, we're doing we're kind of doing a meta podcast here, I guess. Um uh, podcast about a podcast. Uh, yeah, but uh, so Mars Hill, it's, it refers to a, um, a former mega church uh, in Seattle um, that uh, started sometime in the mid to late 90s and grew pretty rapidly over the course of the, um, the 2000s and in, into the early part of the 2010 to 2013 or so. The Aussies. So, what's that? The Aussies. Yeah, I, I, I call uh, them the Aussies. Aussies, okay, good. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to. I'll have to remember that. Anyway, um, so it, it's it it's um, actually I used I knew this and I forgot, but why they decided to name it Mars Hill? Um, maybe somebody, one of you, can fill it in. I can't remember exactly, but it it sounds like a um, a book about the Roman Empire because I. I imagine this was intentional, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was subconscious on the part of the the the, the Christianity Today um, host that to call it the rise and fall of Marcel. Um, but it it really does have that air of it's like a, an empire. It was this small, you know, church that grew rapidly into a huge dominating force that you know started moving out to and putting satellites. Uh, churches around it and very much growth a lot like an empire um, in a lot of ways and then um, you know the whole trope of a once you a big empire the bigger it is the harder it falls so it really does kind of feel like that Um, at least to me that's my my uh, kind of troglodyte kind of view of it uh, not knowing too much history of the Roman Empire but um, Blake do you know offhand why it's called Mars Hill I don't remember why he called it that. I'm pretty sure I remember that he started it when he was 25. And I definitely remember listening to a sermon where he said he regretted calling it Mars Hill and then said, if I had to do it over again, I would have called it Jesus Church, which I thought was funny because after he started a new church, it was called Trinity Church, not Jesus Church, but maybe, you know, more benefit of. I mean, I kind of like the name. It's it's different, you know, from. Particular, you know what you and I kind of like it, but well, let, uh, let me go ahead and get in here. And uh, the reason that it is called Mars Hill, I actually know this one. I was just going to let you guys have a chance to swing at it. Uh, <laughs> is that Mars Hill is a translation of Areopagus, uh, oh. which is the place where Saint Paul talked to the people of Athens in Acts seventeen. And interestingly, and I don't, I have no idea if Mark Driscoll knew this. Uh, but you know, in, uh, oh, Paul, a biography, which is one of NT Wright's books that I got to talk with him about on Christian humanist profiles, uh, Wright makes the argument that the storyteller behind acts very intentionally puts Paul on the Areopagus rather than in some other part of Athens, 
because that is where Socrates was on trial for his life. And uh, Wright argues that, you know, the setting is there to generate that dramatic tension. Is St. Paul going to survive this encounter? So one, one other interesting bit is that another megachurch that, uh, you know, arises during the same rough span, you know, the late 90s through the early 80s, is the Michigan Mars Hill Church, uh, whose pastor was Rob Bell. Mars Hill Bible Church in Michigan. Thank you for correcting that, Blake. So, Blake, okay, I mean, now, you know, things are starting to make sense because I, yeah, I, I got those two conflated so, uh, at one point in my mind. So that I knew Rob Bell had a church, and I knew their Mars was in the name somewhere. And so, yeah, okay. And, and then there's also a Mars Hill College in North Carolina, which I only know because my alma mater Milligan used to play them in basketball. So I, <laughs> that's all I know about Mars Hill in North Carolina. So, Blake, other than that, any other, uh, you know, relevant details you want to start off with about Mars Hill itself before we get to the uh, concepts we're digging into? Well, I um, I wouldn't say I was there for it because I was uh, down in Athens, Georgia, when I was a huge uh, Mars Hill fan. But I, I did listen to uh, some of Driscoll's sermons when he was getting started. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Um, to hear him tell it during uh, during the reign of Mars Hill, if you will, uh, he he said that before that church got started, the Pacific Northwest was the least churched area uh, in the United States. And at the apex of Mars Hill's power, he said it no longer is because uh, of our efforts in part, at least, I guess. Um, the church was very quickly multi-site. Uh, it eventually got to the point where um, I believe it already planted churches in uh, Northern California and in Portland, Oregon, I think, uh, branching out from multiple sites in around the Seattle, Washington area. It was uh, at the forefront of utilizing internet and technology to spread its voice. So it was one of the first, you know, places, one of the first churches where you could download their weekly sermons as a podcast or see their stuff on YouTube. Um, very much from the beginning, and that helped it establish itself as a cultural force, at least in terms of Christianity, um, and of course, a lot of write-ups uh, in, in various outlets, um, everything from Seattle's uh, newspaper, The Stranger, which apparently had kind of a vendetta against Mark Driscoll, and Jezebel.com, which, you know, wrote a few uh, angry things about what they were teaching and preaching out of Mars Hill, so it, it became uh, a kind of hot spot for, for information and, uh, you know, the, sort of the face of public Christianity over in the Pacific Northwest while it lasted. Right. And I don't know how much I'm overlapping here with what uh, Danny Anderson's doing over on Sectarian Review, but that is an important data point to remember is that if you attend a church that live streams its services, as my tiny little disciples church does, if you are a part of a church that has video content on the internet, I mean, all of these things began there in Seattle with Mars Hill. And that's something that I definitely gleaned from this podcast is that uh, they definitely started those trends, uh, which, you know, I mean, I, 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 I had an abstract notion that they had to begin somewhere. Uh, I just didn't know that, you know, the, the place with Mark Driscoll was also the place where all of that started. So, 
that's definitely something I learned from that podcast. We should go. I, I should go ahead and mention. I, I neglected this as the host to say that um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill is a podcast produced and distributed by uh, CT Media Christianity Today. Uh, it's definitely worth a listen. It is a long podcast. Uh, and it's one of those that is, you know, definitely kind of a, a single narrative kind of thing. It's not a what shall we talk about this week podcast as the shows on the Christian Humanist Radio Network tend to be. Uh, but it's definitely got a starting point and an ending point, And I, I definitely recommend it. So, Blake, knowing what the other shows are talking about, I mentioned those earlier. Um, I wanted to get philosophical on our episode and talk specifically about what work public memory does. Um, you can talk about the what and the how along the way, but be sure to get to the why. Is there something inherently worthwhile about crafting and sharing a common narrative about the reign of a king in France or a socialist commune in southern Indiana or a church in Seattle? Or do we do the work of journalism and history for the sake of something beyond those enterprises themselves? Mm, that's a good question. Uh when I think of public memory, I, I, my mind sort of pictures uh, any kind of group, uh, anything from a nation to, you know, maybe a religious sect coming together to tell each other the story of, of their own history of what's been happening. And so you get a lot of voices and a lot of uh, cooks in the, in the kitchen to express, uh, you know, what they believe happened. And of course, that means that you're going to get some conflicting ideas and some, you know, power dynamics when it comes to what happened and 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 who gets to finally tell the story. When I uh, think about public uh, memory and the history of it, um, my mind goes to a People's History of the United States, that book by Howard Zinn, which kind of is kind of held up as this ur text, this codifying text for the other side of. A, a historical idea. Um, and so you get this idea of ground level people talking about what happened in these major historical uh, these parts of American history. So we don't just hear what was, quote unquote, written by the victors, so to speak. But at the same time, uh, it's, it's difficult to come away with an, a, a codified idea of what really happened, even though any individual can say, I was there, I know what really happened. We have to understand that this is colored by their perspective and what, how it affected them and, and what they might've wanted to see happen and what they think it all meant. So uh, it, it's difficult to say, you know, if, if you can get to a point where uh, we're really doing something that lasts, doing something that, that really tells us anything, if somebody else can come behind us and go, well, you weren't talking to the right people. And in a way, that's kind of what uh, Mike Cosper's work here does is say, if you remember Mars Hill, you probably remember the very glossy, you know, uh, sheen that they put out. And then you remember it kind of evaporating out of nowhere for seemingly no reason. And here's all of the seedy stuff that was going on underneath. So it works as a sort of expose to try and uh, tell people how Mark Driscoll acted, what kind of leadership he set up, and and how that place kind of, according to to some people in the in the story, crushed them, uh, and and made things just terrible for them, and the, for the sake of at first advancing the Christian kingdom, and later on seemingly advancing 
their power and his power. Dan, I want to kick it over to you and, and pose the same question and then see if you guys will bounce off of each other for a moment. Do we craft these narratives, these histories and these memoirs and these journalistic accounts and these podcasts for their own sake or is it for the sake of something beyond themselves? Uh, yeah. Um, and by the way, I listeners who have been with us a while know that I love the impossible questions. That was the sigh that Dan just let out is, oh, Gilmore, are you at it again? And the answer is yes. <laughs> I'm glad no, somebody it, agrees with me on that. It's, it's, a, it's a great uh, question. I mean, yes. I, I guess the answer I would say is, yeah, I would do for both reasons. I, um, I think that um, for its own sake, be, I mean, if, you, uh, if you're calling this the, the, the podcast series in this case as being like in one of these articles or these this like capsule of public memory, I think that in one way you could say it's created for the sake of of um of um of, it, of its own sake of being of a story that's compelling um that's set in like real life but but still a compelling story with an arc that um people can learn from uh and then at the same time in this case uh um i think that it is trying to point towards um more broader lessons that it wants people to draw from it um, that beyond just, you know, hearing a, 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 an a, a interesting, tragic uh, story, um, if that makes sense. That oh, absolutely, absolutely. At? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you uh, know, I mean, Blake, I mean, when you talked about Howard Zinn, I mean, that is a book that decidedly sets out to alter public consciousness, right? right there is right. an existing public consciousness that comes from your standard North American and United States of American public school history book. And Howard Zinn is going to try to disrupt that for the sake of raising different questions, right? Um, um, is that what Mike Cosper is doing here, do you think? Or do you think he's doing something else? I think it's part uh, a sense of kind of exposing and, and showing that all was, you know, not as it seemed and that some of the, the things that we might have taken as uh, complete benefits or complete, you know, boons to the the culture there, or you know, the churches and its their members themselves had a cost, and it almost there's especially by the end, it kind of becomes a sort of group therapy session almost, where a lot of people can can kind of come out and and talk about the wounds that they say they received um, from that culture, that leadership, and just the way they they did things. And, you know, serve as a warning or a wake up call to say, you know, find this in the other places that it definitely exists and, and, and root it out or be wary of this when you go step into the next mega church or church of any size for that matter. Yeah, yeah it's I interesting because I'll oh, go ahead, Dan, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that that's right. I think that um, it, uh, you, you almost get in train, you get in train, definitely something you said there just stuck out to me. It was like how it start toward the end sort of almost comes towards like a, a, a group therapy session. And, and I think that it may serve that role for a lot of listeners who may have had similar experiences in their own lives. Um, and uh, so that connects with them on that kind of level, but um, also just 
there's a lot of places where the, the host wax is expansive, uh, expansive about some of the implications for uh, our model for how we do church, you know, in, in, in United States in particular and in, in evangelicalism and, and the implications, the broader implications that may draw from that. So definitely is focused a lot on individual stories uh, within this whole like ecosystem, this milieu of, of what's going on with, with a particular church, Mars Hill. But I think um, it, he, I, I, at least I thought that the host did a pretty good job of kind of moving between this sort of uh, focus on a particular church and the particular happenings um, and what this may mean, at least from his perspective for um, beyond that context. So, uh, yeah. And, and I'm glad you, you guys, you know, flesh that out some, because this is one of the questions that I, I definitely had in mind listening to this podcast, because, you know, I mean, the, the quickest way to get a young academic historian eye twitching on you uh, is to ask whether there's a moral purpose to doing history, whether we can learn lessons to it because they have been trained so ardently to resist the impulse to moralize about history uh, mm. that, that, you know, even if they have an impulse to their professional training, won't let them. Yeah. But, you know, you look at older writers and I mean, I'm, I'm thinking especially Niccolo Machiavelli and his discourses on Livy. And I mean, when he does the history of the Roman Republic, it is decidedly to learn lessons about how to stabilize a Republic, because if you don't learn from that history, your Republic's going to fall apart like Rome did. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I think of everyone from blue check Twitter to George W. Bush, you know, wanting to invoke history as a moral force, right. Uh, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Yeah. And so I, you know, th those are the kinds of things I, you know, that, that are kind of animating this, but we've got the concepts down. I want to hear your stories. Um, uh, about how you connect with Mark Driscoll with Mars Hill. And I've seen your, uh, your pre show notes. So I'm fascinated to hear these stories out loud. So uh, Dan, uh, tell your story of how you uh, came to learn about Mars Hill. Uh, and then after you told that story uh, and, you know, take your time doing it, uh, pass it off to Blake. So, yeah, sure. Um, I think it's good to start with a little bit of, more general context. Uh, so my, uh, uh, about the time that, um, that Mars Hill was sort of on the rise um, in the late nineties uh, and into the aughts and the, and so on. Um, I was, you know, quote unquote, coming of age. Um, around that time, I, I uh, was graduating, graduating from high school in the late nineties, moving on to college, completely new, new world and moved on from there to grad school and so on. And so while all this was happening, I'm, 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 uh, you know, leaving home and, and get, getting into a new world and new perspectives and stuff. Uh, I was about, that was also about the time that the, the, the so-called emerging church movement was really getting off the ground. And, uh, you know, as is common or maybe, I don't know, common, but at least it does happen, um, uh, I, I was going through at the time a couple of my, I would say minor crises of faith. Um, there, uh, there were certainly some um, uh, big, you know, what today what the, the, the kids would call um, deconstruction. And that's not to um, 
not to uh, uh, denigrate that term, but um, and, and I was reading Derrida yeah. in the '90s, so the, the, that's the way to give me the eye twitch is to talk about deconstruction, but not in the context of late 20th century philosophy. But go, keep going, Dan. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it it, uh, it it was I guess you know what what lot what a lot of people mean by that was some of the things that I was doing at the time, um, and uh, you know just trying to learn about. Uh, uh, what what my faith meant now and to myself and and, and you know and um, I discovered some of the writings of the, some of the leading figures of the the, the emerging church movement so people like Brian McLaren um, Scott McKnight and Rob Bell um, uh, Rachel Held Evans and and a lot of others and I read a lot of their their books and and their blogs and and so on and even at the time I wasn't like you know like buying everything they were saying like you know, hook, line, and sinker, and, and becoming like, you know, a convert to a, you know, or to a new way, if that makes sense. But I did gain a lot of perspective from, from a lot of these writings. Um, and uh, I think at the time, just like I said, despite what I consider to be some, some, some pretty decent flaws in some of the thinking and doctrine of some of these individuals, um, I think that that, that during that time, a lot of that was instrumental in and, and helping me stay with the faith, I think. I mean, I think this only really became apparent in hindsight um, when I kind of look back on it, um, is that it gave me a, a perspective um, from uh, of, of Christianity from a different angle, like a very different angle from what I had been brought up with. And I saw at, in a lot of these individuals, um, and a very clear um, desire, you know, very clear um, centrality of Christ and wanting to um, um, treat being a Christian and, 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 uh, the, the, and the Christian faith very seriously, despite my some disagreements. Before I get too much on a ramble here, I think that that was very important for me to sort of be able to broaden perspective, my perspective while still um, remaining a strong um, believer. And so that's the backdrop. Um, and I'll try to um, speed it up here a bit, but I, I, I think it's an important backdrop for how I kind of started learning about Mark Driscoll. So uh, this Mark Driscoll was at least early on um, sort of in that emergent kind of umbrella. Um, he, he went to some of the, the, the same conferences I don't think that he stayed in that orbit very long. Um, I think that that he kind of went off on his own way fairly quickly. But at least early on, he was saying and thinking along the same lines as a lot of the other folks in that movement were doing. Um, and, and so that's how I kind of knew that he was there and he was a figure. But I didn't read much of his stuff. Um, I was only vaguely aware of his growing influence, mainly by some of the... Um, the, the writings of these some of these other folks that I mentioned and others that um, were criticizing him for um, uh, some of his practices, um, his conduct and doctrine, and so on. So what I did read was enough to kind of turn me off from him in a lot of ways. And it wasn't just men, people in the emerging church who were criticizing him. There was a lot of, uh, um, uh, or people to the left of him theologically, I would say more broadly, it was also people, uh, fairly conservative evangelical folks who were, at least it seemed that way to me at the time. And, and so that this kind of broad coalition of 
critique was sort of like, yeah, maybe there is some issues here. But I think more recently, um, I had started listening to this um, podcast called Unbelievable, um, which is put on by Premier Christian Radio. It's a UK-centered uh, network. Um, and uh, there's a, the host of that podcast, Justin Brierley, um, is just an excellent interviewer. I don't know if any of you all have listened to any of his of those podcasts, but if you haven't, yeah, you, you, you ought to, they're, they're, they're outstanding. And the, he, he, as an interviewer, he is just incredibly gracious, very thoughtful, very talented. Um, and, and, uh, always treats all of the, his, his, uh, his, uh, uh, interviewees, the people on his podcast with a lot of respect. He interviews a lot of Christians, non-Christians, puts them in debates and so on, but he interviewed Mark Driscoll once, uh, and, uh, without getting into too much details, I think the listeners can kind of look this up if they want to get into the details of it. Um, Driscoll really kind of turned the tables on him at one point and started like be- interrogating um, Justin Brierley about his the fact that his wife was a pastor um, of their church and um, what and uh, several other things that were just very kind of aggressive um uh, tactics. And it just really, I was like, okay, if you're, if you're, uh, you don't do that to Justin, you know, I, I was just, I was really kind of disappointed. And so I was disinclined to come a lot of slack there. Uh, so yeah, um, finally going into this CT podcast, when I saw that this podcast was coming out, the Christianity Today podcast that we're talking about, I, um, it's just the bottom line is uh, sort of the wrap things up. I had a, some basic familiarity with um, Mark Driscoll and the material, but a lot of the details of this podcast were, were brand new to me. So it really served to kind of like fill in a lot of the backstory for me. Um, yeah. Right. Real quick, Dan, before we go over to Blake, uh, that interview, was it when Mars Hill was kind of at its height or was it after the church had already dissolved or roughly when in the timeline did it happen? If you don't remember, that's all right. I, I, I don't remember for certain, but I'm, but I think it was before, before the, 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 all, um, the fallout before the, the collapse. Okay. Okay. So in other words, Driscoll was operating from a place of prominence Yeah. that I, as I yet was unsullied by the later yeah, revelations. Yeah. I mean, there, there were okay. there, a lot of stuff had already built up, you know, he had a reputation obviously at that point. But, sure. But, but the New York it. times, you know, juking the numbers and the, uh, the William Wallace alter ego hadn't surfaced yet. Yeah. I don't know for hundred percent certain, but I'm going to guess. No. That's okay. A, very good. Very good. Yeah. Well, I we should look into that after the podcast. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Listeners, if you want to email us and ask, I will, uh, I'll reply to that email. If you email the Christian humanist at gmail.com, I'll get Dan's answer for you. Uh, Blake, what's your Mark Driscoll story? Uh, short answer, I was a Mark Driscoll shill. I was a Mark Driscoll rube or Mark or easy target. Uh, there was a time when I would have probably told you I'm in seminary because Mark Driscoll makes me believe even somebody like me could be a pastor or something like that. And honestly, just sitting here listening uh, to Dan talk and thinking about this, uh in a way, he was kind of the Jordan Peterson of his time. You know, he mm. had this message. <laughs> it, it's funny you bring that name up. He's going to be part of my story, too. But keep rolling. Yeah, uh, for better or worse. Right. But, um, you know, he was he had 
a an aggressive authoritative voice for young men telling them that they did have a responsibility to you know to get their heads on straight and get their shoulder to the plow working that sort of thing so uh the very first experience that i can remember of having him was uh watching a youtube video where he answered a question about a certain sexual practice and just answered the question somebody had, you know, like texted it in and there was a screen on stage there, it came up and and he answered the question and he didn't shy away from it. And on one level, it was, oh my gosh, a pastor's, you know, freely talking about sex and, and not, you know, telling anybody they should be ashamed for even asking or thinking about it. But then on the deeper level, there was, oh my gosh, you know, the pastor's on stage and people are allowed to text him questions. They show up on a screen next to him and he answers. That's That's so much cooler than a guy, you know, reading Leviticus and then and then talking about it for 20 minutes while I sit with my hands in my lap, that kind of thing. So it was very engaging for me. I listened to his sermons. Um, I read a couple of his books and recommended others of them uh, to his friends. And and when he would act like himself and be a little too aggressive or make a joke at somebody else's expense, that sort of thing, I would, you know, think about a way to explain it away uh, and and kind of stay on his side. As a matter of fact, uh, Rachel Held Evans uh, came to my seminary uh, a summer in between two of my semesters, and she was talking about her book, A Year of Biblical Womanhood, where she calls her husband master and flies a sign that says how great she is outside the city limits and all that kind of stuff. And I thought she was taking questions from the audience. And at the time I was thinking, man, I'd love to ask her what it would take for her to quit posting blogs about Mark Driscoll, because I know those are the ones that get her the most views <laughs> and how she, I wish she quit <laughs> riding him like a hobby horse into stardom of her own. Um, but of course, more and more things came to light, more and more things, uh, you know, came out. And uh, there was, like you said, the, the New York Times juking and then the William Wallace, which interestingly enough, he admitted to in one of his earliest books, but it was just at the right time for somebody to bring it back up um and then things kind of oh and i did not know that yeah his, that's interesting his second book uh was called confessions of a reformation reb rev when he was trying to coin this term called reformation uh, and i'm not even i don't even remember what it was supposed to be about but he said you know i was on our church's blog posting as this guy william wallace and i said some things i shouldn't have and he obviously didn't go into too much detail but i was like oh when when those when uh, Rachel Held Evans first brought that to light, I kind of used the fact that he had copped to it earlier to kind of blunt the impact of it in my mind and kind of protect his reputation in my mind. Mm -hmm. Well, he already you know said he did it. And he already said he was sorry. That kind of thing. But obviously at this point, and especially by the end of the uh, show, listening to Mike Cosper's podcast from the beginning, it was easy for me, even you know knowing everything that I knew already to try and, try and pick out the places that I thought were like low blows or pot shots. And come on, Mike, you're not giving him enough credit, that sort of thing. But of course, by the end and by the end of Mars Hill, there were some pretty egregious lapses in judgment and sins. So that was uh, another kind of interesting walk down memory lane for me. Very good. I was an undergrad in the mid to late 90s. Uh, and I took a really phenomenal church history seminar with uh, Dr. Craig Farmer, no relation to Michael that I'm aware of, uh, just on the continental, continental, pardon me, reformations. So we read a ton of Luther, a ton of Calvin, and 
I discovered during that semester that I was probably never going to be a Lutheran or a Calvinist. <laughs> and so when I heard about Mark Driscoll several years later, uh, probably somewhere around 2003, 2004, uh, and people said, you know, he is making Calvin edgy, uh, that just held no appeal for me because I, I, like I said, I was at that point immune to the appeal of Calvin. Yeah. Um, now, during that time, because I had so many people in my circles who were just ardently opposed to Mark Driscoll, and I had so many people who were such ardent proponents of Mark Driscoll, uh, I made a policy. And in retrospect, I think this was probably good for my health of remaining as ignorant as possible of anything that Mark Driscoll wrote, spoke, or was involved with. Uh, so that when people asked me my opinion on Mark Driscoll, I could say, that guy out on the West Coast, I, I really don't know much about him. And I wouldn't be lying. Uh, and incidentally, it's funny that Blake mentioned Jordan Peterson, because here about uh, eight or 10 years ago, when Jordan Peterson's star was on the rise, I made the same policy because I had so many people in my circles who were so fiercely opposed to Jordan Peterson and also so many people who were so ardently uh, his proponents. Um, so when I listened to this podcast, as I mentioned earlier, and, and similarly to what Dan was talking about, I was to a large extent learning this story for the first time. Um, you know, so I mean, there were certain things that really hit me as a surprise. One of them was that, you know, so many of the things that we associate now just with church life in the internet age began there in Seattle. Uh, another one was that so little time passed between the New York Times scandal and the beginning of his new church plant. Um, like I, for some reason, I had in my head that several years elapsed and it was a matter of just a few months. Uh, so, I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that, uh, you know, I learned for the first time. And like I said, I mean, you know, as I was listening, you know, Mike Cosper definitely has uh, more of a, and I, and I, it, please understand listeners, when I say a Machiavellian use of history, I don't mean that he is amoral or that he thinks you should appear pious, but not be pious. What I do mean is that like Machiavelli in discourses on Livy, not the Prince, forget the Prince for a second, as Machiavelli does in discourses on Livy, uh, Cosper puts together this story and comments on it for the sake of learning lessons for engaging with analogous moments in the future. And, you know, for that reason, I mean, you know, and because uh, I have friends who are academic historians, it, it struck me as interesting because uh, it, it raised to the front of my consciousness uh, some of the big debates about why we do history in the first place. So, Blake, we, we've kind of touched on this already, and it's hard not to, you know, hit on discrete points as we're talking about this because they do all connect with each other. But one of the refrains of the series Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, especially in the last handful of episodes and especially in the grand finale, that two and a half hour monument uh, where Mike Cosper tries to be Dan Carlin, uh, is that we hear this story and that, you know, we the listeners think that we are immune to this kind of world bestriding self-anointed quote unquote leader. Um, 
and we are more likely or even doomed to fall victim to the next one that comes along. So as a telos for journalism and history, like I said, I hear some echoes of Machiavelli, but it still strikes me as melodramatic. I'll confess that. Um, so am I suffering here the pride that cometh before a fall? <laughs> well, my gut reaction is to say uh, it's a short form podcast, you know, that has a clear beginning, middle and end, or at least a beginning and an end. Uh, and so you kind of want to wrap it up with a big message one way or the other. You might as well, you know, have one like don't fall too in love with your super powerful leader, you know. Um, I can kind of understand where you're coming from. And I, I kind of agree that it does seem like it, they really did find that message and that theme and that big idea that they wanted to drive home and leave you with about halfway through the podcast. And it kind of started as let's just, you know, look out our window at this car crash and, and point to, you know, all the carnage and, and, you know, open fires we see. Um, and I think that's the more cynical way of, of looking at it and to say, like the most cynical thing would be to say, Mike Cosper knows that this kind of thing would sell, this story of, you know, this implosion would sell. And he's gonna give, get a lot of people together to give you the gory details and, and grisly reality of it. And at the end, he's going to say, but, you know, also I might be just as bad as anybody else and so might you and kind of wash his hands of it. And, uh, and maybe the, the most charitable reading of it is to say, you know, at the end, try not to think of these people who were leaders in this church or, or longtime members of this church as idiots who were easily conned and suckered into this and try to think about, you know, the fact that we can, we can have these ideals and we can be doing the right thing and ideally for the right reasons and and before we know it, we've we've accidentally done some things we really shouldn't have, or we've accidentally, you know, given up a large part of our integrity that we really wanted to keep. And I think I think that there's a lot of that as well. Um, and it kind of depends on who he's getting to tell the story or not. It also really occurs to me that this uh, this podcast series, it's it's so interesting that it comes when it does. I mean. The rise and fall of Mars Hill, it's it was over in 2014, if I'm not mistaken, or 2015 or so. So this could have happened more recently, but it did happen instead in the same year where we get things like Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Cobes Dumay and Beth Allison Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, that exist to kind of say, oh, not to mention, you know, the election and, and presidency of Donald Trump everything that okay there's the elephant in the room that i thought <laughs> i was hoping someone would mention yeah eventually. keep rolling blake <laughs> i think i think at this point every podcast that goes a certain length has to mention trump but i don't know um well but, but i mean why, why do we have a 30-hour podcast about mark driscoll in 2021 right exactly i mean I, I i think that that is unintelligible without the trump administration yeah so, but anyway, keep going. I, I shouldn't be interrupting no, you. I'm, I'm being a bad host here. Just to, just to <laughs> kind of sum it up, it kind of seems like we are, you know, at the apex of a cultural moment that's saying, you know, when you think of American Christianity, you probably think of, you know, a white man behind the pulpit. You probably think of the women settled down and not speaking in church. You probably think of, 
you know, evangelicals having all this way. And we're here to tell you that all of that is terrible. And there's so many awful things that are happening behind it. And so that's what Jesus and John Wayne allegedly does. I haven't read it yet. That's what making biblical womanhood. That's what so many of the, you know, post Trump or during Trump, you know, backlashes that the evangelical church has has seen or experiencing. And that's what we're we're getting and taking away from the story about Driscoll and Marzell. Right, right. And I mean, just to comment on this before I turn it over to Dan, I mean, I think that at the very least, a subtext here is don't be too judgmental of those evangelicals who backed Donald Trump these last five years. I've got to think that's a subtext. I mean, Blake, am I am I overreading that or is it in there? I think that, like you said, it's kind of inevitable um, and, and it eventually becomes they were just behaving according to type. You know, this is nothing new for them, that sort of thing. And they love a good leader to tell them who they are and, and who their enemies are and tell the people who might be naysaying to shut up. So, yeah, that makes sense. Right. And, and especially as Christianity Today, along with National Review, has taken such a beating over the last five years because they still insist that something is deeply wrong with the Trump moment. Right. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, like I said, I mean, I might be overreading that, but I am keeping Dan from telling, uh, from adding to this. So uh, Dan, what would you add to it? Yeah. I, yeah, I was just listening to your, your conversation there. Uh, and I, I think it's the, when you were talking about the, if that's a subtext and 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 in the backdrop here of the current of the current moment, um, the post-Trump era or whatever, I definitely think that that situates this much differently than if, say, this would have come this this whole thing would have come out during the Obama years. Um, no doubt about it, it yes. would have had the same yes. kind of <laughs> um, layers of meaning and impact. I think so. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, but. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if there was any kind of conscious awareness of that this that there might be this subtext of like oh so this now you can kind of maybe see why Trump voters did the what what the way they did. Um, I don't know. I think that might maybe. Uh, I do think that 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 Cosper's um, pointing out of how this kind of thing um, of this sort of hero worship of a of a strong, you know, um, strong man type, you know, aggressive leader, like, um, is, and, and his, and his, and his pointing out in several places that, you know, this, this is a temptation, um, that can go far beyond, you know, it's easy to just kind of see the folks at Mars Hill as being like, oh, they, they, they fell into that trap, but that would never happen to me. Um, it, it's, it's, I can see how that would be giving um, that kind of subtext, but I, I don't think that takes away from, I think it's a good point is what, uh, I guess what I'm trying to get at. I think that it does, that this kind of uh, uh, willingness to, to look the other way and, and to give certain leaders the benefit of a doubt too much um, and defer to them too much and can um, is just one of the, things that we periodically have to struggle with as humans beings. And I think it's fine to point that out in any moment in time. I just think it does definitely, it's hard to see, it's hard to avoid 
bringing that back to the, the current cultural moment. I think the message that would be just would be just as valid if it if that weren't the case. I am not explaining what I'm thinking. Okay, I'm not explaining. What That's I'm interesting. No, 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 no. I mean, you're you're making a point that I didn't anticipate, Dan. And like I said, I listen through this podcast as a podcast about Trump that never mentioned the name Trump, except for the very first episode where they quoted someone that said, "If you follow Driscoll, yeah. then you'll follow Trump," and that was the last mention of. Donald Trump for the entire yeah, yeah, run of the I, podcast, I guess when I was right? To it, I did not really wasn't not thinking. Oh, Trump! That Trump! Oh, there's Trump! It wasn't coming into my consciousness that way. But I, um, it, it, if that's what you mean, but it, it certainly, when you look at how the kind of impact it's it's having, and you know, people talking about it, and the the lessons it's trying to impart, it definitely. There's it, it def, there definitely is that subtext. So I just think that Very good. Um, to put it another way, I think that the le- the less the lessons that Cosper and the others are uh, that produced this are trying to impart um, on us are pretty. Uh, the, you can find um, that in every moment of, in history. You know, it just so happens that right now it's it's particularly. It's it's it the 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 um the pot is boiling at a higher level I guess right now for that message. Yeah, yeah I, I got I, you. My I got you. are really bad tonight, but hopefully you understand what I'm saying. No, that's yeah. all right. That's all right. No, and no, and, and I'm reminded of a, of a formula that was common in late 20th century uh, ethical discourse that uh you know I'm not mad at the people who follow people like Mark Driscoll. I pity the fool. <laughs> And yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sorry, that, that was a <laughs> dumb joke and I am unrepentant and uh, we're, we're going to move on because uh, like I said, I, 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 I set out tonight to make people regret they listen to these things and I'm succeeding. So I'm going to go back to Dan. Dan, I know that we don't have any professional historians on this episode, uh, even though our network does have some, but I figure we've been talking about things without specialized knowledge for several good years already here on the Christian Humanist Podcast. So I'm just inviting you guys into our game, right? So Dan, whenever someone speaks or writes a history, there's always someone doing the speaking and the writing. So in your view, how did this project balance the poll that says, look at me, the person telling the story, kind of the postmodern, postcolonial approach to history. And then on the other hand, the sort of old German, let me get out of the way and let the principal players and artifacts do the talking and let you know what really happened, poll of history making. Um, and if they had balanced it differently, how do you think the stories might have emerged differently? Yeah. So I love this question because, um, I, I, I really think this is very important. Like when you said, you know, there's always somebody doing the speaking, right. And it's like, there's no view from nowhere. I forget who said that, but, um, but I, I, I think that's definitely true. And, and so you have to look at what's, what the, like this whole narrative, uh, um, and filter that through the lens of the personality and the and uh, and the uh, style and and whatnot of the person doing this the telling, which which both can simultaneously enrich the story and um, but also can uh, I don't want to use the word skew, um, but can uh, orient it in a, down a certain narrative path um, that that. Uh, where you may not get 
uh, uh, the whole perspective, I guess. Um, but in this case, I think the project itself uh, the, the balanced it balanced things pretty well, in my opinion. I mean, overall, when I was listening to um, Cosper, the host, I didn't really get the impression that he was, you know, you know, trying to draw attention to himself too much, like like oh, look at me talking, you know. Um, but you know, he did he he did. He, I think it was very matter of fact. I guess is what I would say about how he went about it. So yeah, I looked into this. Um, I talked to this person, and then occasionally he would go into the digressions about his particular take on a given situation in, in the different uh, podcast episodes where he would focus on different aspects of the whole situation um, and, and give his you know, opinion about what kind of lessons we could take from it, which, I mean, in, in, as far as I could tell, he was pretty upfront and straightforward about what his view was and what was what he, when he then he would take a step back and let the people talk. So I think it was a good, pretty good give and take there overall. Um, uh, and when I look back on the, the um, a- after having spent, you know, a few weeks, you know, removed, several weeks removed from having listened to the last episode, um, I, my, my, the most things that I remember are the different players in the story and they're, and they're what they had to say um, and not as much what he had to say. So um, that sort of took second place to me. Um, yeah, and another thing um, that factors into this, and I, I, I don't know um, if this really, this may not um, be either here or there, but, but one thing that I noticed was that a lot of the episodes were delayed from when we were expecting to see them. And like, I, I do remember at least early on, you say, oh yeah, we're gonna re- release a, uh, an episode every other week, I think it was. And, and then that ended up becoming, in some cases, big stretches between like a month or so between episodes, which, you know, is uh, I like I have any room to talk uh, with our, you know, my uh, podcast that I help host, uh, Book of Nature. We haven't done an episode since the start of the pandemic, so I know how that goes. But um, but I that to me lent it an air more authenticity. I didn't get the impression that 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 um, they were that. Uh, they were doing this to try to, oh, we got to keep people engaged. So we're going to release an episode every other week, no matter what. Um, when they delayed it, they did it. The, the explanation later on was um, we more more people came forward, you know, uh, as they were listening to this and they wanted and we wanted to do justice to their story. So we took some time, spent some extra time putting things together to make sure we did it right. And I took that at face value. Um, so. Um, as far as your last question, what kind of different kind of stories might have emerged with a different balance? Um, yeah, I think if he had made it more about how he was going to tell the story, um, uh, I think what did you use the, the the sort of the postmodern? Uh, what was the other thing you said? Uh, postcolonial. Postcolonial. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's the it's life. the Howard Zinn yeah. point that uh, Blake was making earlier. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So if he had made it more like that, I probably would have got stop listening after a while because um i get um i at, well, at some point it becomes okay this is just about what this person thinks and uh and and it's great if um interesting maybe up to a certain point but i want to hear what's what the history more so um i do i do remember getting a little bit annoyed toward the end with the like the same opening sound bites over and over again start to kind of grate on me after a while uh especially Driscoll the- smash 
Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, especially the one with like the, the, the Driscoll yelling, you know, who do you think you are? You know? And yeah. I, I stopped I hearing if, words after a while. And I, yeah, I really did I just hear Driscoll that, smash. <laughs> that graded on me after a while. It's like, okay, we get the picture, you know, but um, I get it. You, you have to have an opening splash audio for your podcast. But anyway, um, um, yeah, I, I don't know where else I was going with that other than to say that um, uh, if he had j- uh, gone the other direction and just laid, let say, okay, I'm going to just sit here and let these the people talk, um, uh, I think that would have been less compelling overall. So I think he did a pretty good job of tying together all these different people's stories and perspectives into some kind of coherent narrative that really, really... Um, uh, conveyed uh, a depth to uh, in a, to the, the whole situation. So yeah, that's my take. Um, others' may, opinions may differ. Very good. Blake, uh, what would you add? I, I agree with, with Dan's uh, approach to it, his idea. It, it seemed like Cosper wasn't interested in just telling us how it made him feel. And that's great. I'm glad because I don't know Mike Cosper. So, you know, he's not the most interesting person in the story. Um, but obviously there was an agenda here. It was not a, I'm just going to, you know, collect the first hundred people who were at Mars Hill and just let them tell you what they experienced and you get to determine what, uh, you know, came of it. And it's not surprising, especially at this point, now that we know, you know, some of the mistakes and sins Driscoll committed, that there really wasn't anybody who continues to take his side or continues to say, that it was a net gain, but I, I kind of wish uh, I could have heard a few more stories of, hey, at the end of the day, that's where I got saved, or that's where, you know, I, I fell in love with church, that's where, you know, I, my life changed for the better, and even the fact that he did what he did, and, and this whole thing imploded so quickly, you know, it would have been interesting at, at the end of it for somebody to say, at the end of the day, there was more good than bad, and I didn't expect that to happen. And it didn't seem like that was going to be a possibility. That was not something that Mike Gosper was going to allow to happen. And I wonder. Well, I think there was. There were there a couple some. of people who said, you know, some. you have to think about it. Right, right. And, and I always worry when I start sounding like Coyle Neal, but I'm going to say this anyway. <laughs> but I do wonder if part of that has to do with the online yeah. environment right now where people tend to self-censor around progressives more than they self-censor around people of the right. I, I completely agree. I mean, I, you know, I, I okay. All right. So I, I didn't have to defend that. The, you shouldn't it's have made that so easy, Blake. Uh, well, <laughs> anything at this point, right. You know, like there's, there's not like, you know, well, the, the male headship, you know, patriarchal church I go to is pretty nice. You should come for, you know, Vespers or for Advent, you know, something like that. that's not happening. And I've been reading a lot of like progressive, you know, Christian, uh, not podcasts, but blogs and stuff. And it, it reminds me, I don't know if you ever watched this uh, HBO show called The Newsroom. There was a, an, an episode where, where the head, this news anchor says, it seems like the most important thing about being a Republican today is you have to hate Democrats. And I think sometimes I feel like the most important thing that you have to be to be a progressive Christian is you have to want to talk crap about evangelicals all the time. So we're the new whipping boys. People use the word evangelical with the same venom. I used to hear them say Catholic. So yeah, that's what it that's what it is like these days. So 
Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. One thing about Mike Cosper's narration and Dan, I take your point and I, and I, I'm glad that you brought that up that so much of this show is simply audio samples from people who were part of the story. But if I can focus in on Mike's opening and closing commentaries, especially one thing that I did notice, and this was largely uh, with the help of a former student of mine, Sierra McConnell, uh, who was a former evangelical, now an atheist. Uh, but one thing that she said to me was, this would have been an interesting podcast had we heard a sociologist frame the story rather than an evangelical mm -hmm. pastor. And that led me, I mean, you know, well, back to those questions that I kind of started with, right? Uh, I mean, you know, to what extent, and, you know, I mean, this is, this is straight up, you know, Kenneth Burke, which is, you know, my wheelhouse, of course, because I'm a rhetoric professor, among other things. But in what ways do the terms that we use and the questions we pose frame our reality so that we get a different set of answers that wouldn't come out differently unless we ask different questions, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that made it a bad podcast by any means, but I definitely, uh, once I had that conversation with Sierra, it made me aware that, okay, I mean, this is, and I don't know if Mike Cosper is, is currently on staff with a church or not, but he talks like a pastor. Do you guys agree with pastor. that? I think I remember reading that. Okay. 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 So yeah, I, I, I should I have looked this up before we recorded. Does That's talk like a pastor. Yeah. 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 So like I said, I mean, I don't think that makes it a bad podcast. I do think it makes it an Definitely insider's good. podcast. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it would have been interesting to hear the same set of audio samples framed by, you know, like I said, an anthropologist, a sociologist, you know, a political theorist, someone else. Right. Uh, I think it would have been a very well, different kind of story. Go ahead. There is a book written by a sociologist about Mars Hill Church. Um, I happened upon this while I was doing oh. some more research of my own, just, you know, fact finding while I was listening to the podcast. But um, I think I'm remembering her correctly as a sociologist, but she's a professor of some sort. Her name is uh, Jessica Johnson. And she wrote, a, she went to Mars Hill for a little while, uh, just, you know, as an observer and got the lay of the land and, and reported on it. It seemed like the angle was, you know, how is the greater community of Seattle and Washington being affected by these ideas that are being promulgated at Mars Hill, like the ideas about sexuality and the ideas about uh, men and women and how they should relate to each other. The name of the book is Biblical Porn. So if you're okay with that being on your search history, you can look that up on Amazon. <laughs> I, I was going to say, be sure not to well, do the Google so image search. Th that book's called Biblical Porn. Somebody wrote uh, an article about this podcast that called it Failure Porn. It's, I'm like, I wish it didn't make so much sense for, yeah. for books and articles about Mark Driscoll's work to have that word associated with them. But that is kind of a, a great yeah. book for himself. It, but it kind of yeah. does. <laughs> fascinating yeah um yeah i think what you said there is dead right nathan it was when you said that you know you wonder um if like if a different um different host with a different from a different angle would have taken the same data um and what they would have done with it you would have asked different questions come up with you know maybe different answers yeah and and i think that's true everything um 
in in, the, in this world. And uh, in this, and for something as impactful and important as this, I think it's even more of a, a pointed question um, about. I, I, I that's why I think at one point one of the most interesting parts of this this podcast series was when um, he talked to. Gosh, I'm, I know I'm going to butcher this because my memory is a little fuzzy on it, but he talked to um, a, a, uh, to a person who was an outside kind of person that they brought in to, um, to I don't know if it was a counselor group or something to try to, to, to work on, um, uh, to talk to a lot of the, uh, the um, pastors of the uh, network that after the fallout and um getting their perspective on that was, was particularly interesting about the kind of some about the trauma and everything and how they, how they, um, how they process that. I, I want to say that the, this was like a psychologist. Uh, I can't remember for sure. Could somebody help me out here? Do, does, I, I have vague about? memories of that, but not nothing more than vague memories. Blake, do you remember yeah, this? That was, I remember it coming up rather early in the podcast history. So <laughs> uh that wasn't the latest thing I heard, but yeah, it's in there. Anyway, it was. But no, your point's definitely well, valid, though. The podcast itself does this somewhat. Yeah, so I think that that yeah, exactly. That's the point I'm trying to make. Thank you. Um, is that even inside of that this this overarching kind of perspective coming from you know kind of a pastor's point of view, there was this at least an attempt to bring in people who had from. Uh, different perspectives who had that, but I, I definitely think you're, you're absolutely right there. It would be really interesting to see um, what others had uh, other takes they had. I could probably predict some of it, <laughs> but. Um, oh, sure, sure, sure. But yeah, like but, I said, but, that that's what was on my mind yeah. at the opening and closing of every episode is okay. This is a narration that is concerned with the salvation of souls. Yeah. And, you know, if that weren't the primary interest, how would this narrative take on a different character? Right. And yeah. again, I'm not saying that it made it a worse podcast, but it certainly made it a different podcast. Yeah. And I actually appreciated this perspective because you knew, you know, that at least um, you hope that that that's the, the goal of, you know, this podcast series was like they're coming from an explicit Christian perspective. They, they care about this, you know, people's salvation and the fact that there's going to be a lot of this heavy hitting criticism and stuff is coming at least ostensibly from that perspective of that. We, you know, we care about um, people um, that we care about redemption and, 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 and so on. And whereas if it had come from some of these other perspectives, there would have been that, that element would not necessarily almost certainly wouldn't have been there. So at least for me, I appreciated that because it, 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 um, that insider kind of perspective. So, but I would definitely be interested in hearing another one too, for sure. 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 Yeah. Well, guys, we have been running a little bit over an hour now, and this episode has largely been about my own philosophical interest in the project. Uh, but I'm sure that there are a thousand angles one could take on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. So Blake, without straying too much into uh, the other Christian humanist radio networks shows you know, into their territory, let's say, uh, what would you invite our listeners to think about as they uh, reflect on or listen to Christianity Today's The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? And once you've spoken your invitation, 
uh, pass it off to Dan and Dan sure. can speak well, an invitation. First off, I only have an, a lowly MDiv. I don't have a doctorate, so I don't think anybody needs to worry about me cribbing their good ideas. So, um, But uh, as a minister, as a chaplain who works closely with individuals uh, who are having their own personal spiritual experiences and they go to churches I've never been to and they have ideas that I don't share or any or things like that. One of the things that was really interesting that struck me was uh, the way the podcast traded on the idea of feelings and how people were emotionally hurt by Mark and the church and and sometimes even evangelicalism itself, um, the way the podcast framed it. And so doing the work that I do, I meet a lot of people who have uh, been sinned against, who have been hurt, who have a good reason to have grievances against people. That happens a lot. It is real. It's worth us thinking about, you know, trying to find the correct attitude and response for. I've also worked with people who uh, didn't get their way or were told something they didn't want to hear and that they would consider that a hurt or, you know, maybe they were hurt because their theological ideas and, and what they had been taught for a long time kind of ran into a brick wall of a very different uh, disposition theologically. And so for me, it's without trying to get too much into it and without trying to let Driscoll off the hook, uh, there were some instances in the podcast that kind of struck me as that second category, as just Driscoll did this and I didn't like it and how dare he. And I, I try not to, uh, you know, over empathize with Driscoll, under empathize with the people, you know, that he shepherded uh, and, and just ask myself, how do we correctly ascertain what people deserve and and how to sympathize and empathize with them in these times and how to say you know you you're not going to hear everything you like to hear and leadership means that people are going to be mad at you i've worked for churches where uh the lead pastor was asked to have a conversation with a congregant and the first question he was asked was are you trying to destroy this church and you know I, people who've worked in churches kind of say nobody believes they deserve as much as, as the average congregant sitting in a pew, but it's it's tough to think about how to be the right kind of sensitive to those issues. And I think that would be an interesting thing for people to kind of look over these artifacts, this entire uh, story and say, you know, what kind of lessons of compassion and care and leadership can we really learn? Dan, what did you have? Yeah, so I agree very much with your sentiment. Um, we definitely need to be discerning when um, when people are coming with, you know, a grievance. Um, but uh, as far as, um, you know, whether it's something that where they just didn't like what they heard and, and, they, and that's a hurt to them or if there was, a, you know, real, you know, abuse going on, emotional or otherwise, I think it both can be true of the same grievance, um, something to keep in mind is that there'd be situations where someone didn't really get, you know, just simply didn't get their way, you know, on something, but then, but in the course of all that happening, that there really were, was a sin committed against them by leadership or whatever. And it's not always easy to tease those two apart, but, you know, I'm not a pastor. So my perspective on this is sort of limited to, 
just stories I hear and, you know, um, but I, I will say this, I think that, 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 you know, certainly in this situation with Mars Hill, but I think on a broader scale too, it's like, there's so many of the pervasive stories of, of people coming out, talking about, you know, um, abuse from uh, church leadership and, and whatnot, that it does really seem to me, my perspective at least, is that it is pointing to some a larger systemic problem in in church leadership, maybe even, uh, I, I'm not even qualified as maybe even, also in an evangelical culture. And we just need to acknowledge and address these things. So um, to the extent that this kind of podcast, the, the Christianity Today podcast on Mars Hill can do that, can and can lead to constructive um, um, uh, construct um, improvements, then I say we need to get that stuff out there. Um, anyway, um, the one thing that uh, one thing that uh, another thing that sort of struck me um, when I was listening to a lot of these interviews of people who were particularly close to Driscoll in the leadership hierarchy. Uh, it's interesting that a lot of the stories that you hear that, that that the interviews were of leadership. You don't really get as much from you know the the the, the laity so much. A lot of the abuse and, and stuff that we hear about that were, that was talked about in this podcast was um, perpetrated by uh, amongst the uh, the leadership hierarchy, which I found um, interesting. Um, but this discussion about when when these different the different uh, elders and and you know pastors were talking just so many of the, the the conversations just really struck me as like this sort of smoky back room vibe i don't know about you guys uh um just this sort of like i didn't get a sense that and a lot of these just day-to-day things that we're talking about decisions that were being made about what they were going to do with the budget here or there or or, oh, we're going to give you a whole bunch of money to, um, you know, put this stuff online. It just talked, it, it, it came across as a lot of, like you, you could have transplanted this to any secular business um, issue um, and the fallout from abuse and leadership in a, in a secular business. It, it, didn't, I did, it didn't seem um, any different in its overall tenor um, to, you know, just uh, a business. Uh, and uh, the centrality of Christ was really not even felt at all in a lot of the, these those conversations. And I'm sure that in the, at least to me, I didn't see that. I'm sure that there was that, of course, and that there were, um, but it just didn't come across in, the, in those interviews. Um, so, yeah, I, I think uh, I could say a lot more. But that's, um, I think I'll leave it at that since, you know, we're definitely going quite a bit over time, but um, what do you think, do, do, what do you think of that? I'm curious what you all think of, what, of that. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, the comparison with business definitely becomes more prominent the deeper you get into this story uh, as marketing and image and brand uh, become more of the yeah, yeah. focus. And I don't want to steal too much from uh, Danny Anderson because Danny talks about these things with a an acumen that I can't hope to match. Uh, but Sorry, no, 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 perfectly <laughs> all right. But I mean, uh, listeners, I mean, uh, I'm, uh, what I'm what I'm doing here is uh, is pointing you over to the Sectarian Review because the question that Dan 
just laid down so nicely. I have a hunch they're going to be digging into it over at the Sectarian Review. Well, guys, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for uh, coming on the Christian Humanist Podcast again. Uh, you know, this school year, this 2021-2022 uh, school year, um, Michael Farmer and David Grubbs both started uh, new jobs teaching high school. Uh, they are just up to their necks in those jobs, and so we haven't been able to record any episodes, the three of us, yet. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've had Dan on for a couple episodes now, this one and the Edgar Allan Poe episode, and I appreciate that. And uh, I'll go ahead and make a, a programming note. Um, that I do have the blessing of David and of Michael to do some more of these ad hoc episodes while they kind of get their feet under them uh, in their new jobs. So watch your podcast feeds. I'm going to try to promote the fact that we're going to do these because it's been a while since we've had regular Christian humanist podcasts. So like I said, guys, thank you for jumping on. Um, no problem. It's been great. Yeah, absolutely. The Facebook group is still there. And in fact, I'm going to be posting announcements about our uh, crossover episodes there. Uh, you can also catch us, of course, at christianhumanist.org. Uh, if you want to uh, write an email to us and, you know, wish David and Michael well as they uh, get their heads above water, you can do that at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. The Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, someone who I haven't even yet approached about editing the show will be editing it. So whoever you are, thank you. And uh, in behalf of the Right Reverend Blake Miller and uh, in behalf of Dr. Dan Dawson, I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. <laughs>